Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks that you do indeed illumine our hearts and minds by the indwelling of your spirit in each one who knows and names Christ. So we ask even now that you would guide us and direct us. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. You may be seated. Good to see all of you here. Um, and good morning again to everyone watching via the live stream. I'm so glad that um, not everybody played hooky on a three-day weekend. But so good to see you all and enjoying this cooler and less humid weather. Thanks be to God. <laughs> Amen. So continue today in Ephesians chapter 3. As I mentioned last Sunday, the primary focus of Ephesians chapter 3 is prayer, which we'll see moving forward from today. However, in verses 1 through 13, which we began last week and we're finishing up today, St. Paul takes a brief detour to clarify to the Ephesians that his imprisonment is indeed according to God's will, and that this is all part of God's work of fully bringing together one body of believers in Christ, both Jews and and Gentiles. Last Sunday, verses 1 through 7, St. Paul reiterated the content of the gospel message, how the ground is level at the foot of the cross for all who come to Christ. Paul also spoke of being a faithful steward of God's grace, the grace entrusted to him. And we made application of this to each of us, of our lives and to the life of this church, recognizing that every single one of us who knows and names Christ is entrusted by God as a steward of his grace. That God has given us a sacred trust regarding how we live our lives and how we are faithful to him with those things he has given us. Not just finances, not just material things, but knowledge and giftings and skills and aptitudes and what we do according to God's will with our lives and how our lives are ordered. And now today, continuing through Paul's detour, we see the results of all this. The result is this, the unfolding of God's eternal plan, especially as it involves St. Paul and the full incorporation of the Gentiles into God's household through Christ. In verses 7 and 8 of Ephesians 3, Paul emphasizes the power of God's grace in all of this. That the fact is, this is all by God's grace. Divine grace stands worldly ways of thinking on their head. Divine grace teaches us that receiving God's grace is not in any way attached to or predicated upon notions of temporal value. In other words, it's not based on the standards and the values of this world and things such as wealth and social position and family and ethnicity and culture. And we could go on and on. These are not the things that bring us favor or right relationship with God because grace is God's unmerited, unearned favor. We see proof of this in the life of Paul himself. As we looked at last Sunday, Paul, who had been Saul, who encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, this man who had been persecuting the church, persecuting Christians, basically living as a terrorist. And through this divine transformative encounter, 
is set free, is redeemed, and called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And we see this in the lives of the Gentiles that St. Paul was called to reach, who had been pagans, bound up in, in pagan darkness and wickedness and evil practices, and how God has set them free and transformed them. Proof that the ground is truly level for all who would come to the foot of the cross. That God's grace is indeed his unmerited favor. And then beginning in verse 8, Paul describes how God in his great grace is bringing about his eternal plan through Jesus Christ. What I'm calling the results of God's eternal purposes in verses 8 through 11. And Paul reveals this by emphasizing three key points, each one of them an action. First, in verse 8, we see the words to preach to the Gentiles. God's eternal plan is being furthered by Paul, whom God called again to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And God called him to do this by his grace and his power. Specifically, Paul is called to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles. What riches of Christ are spoken of here? Well, I think we need to look back to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8 that we looked at a few weeks ago. Because that's, those verses spell this out. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. So what are the riches of Christ spoken of here? Redemption through Christ's blood, forgiveness of our trespasses, knowledge of God's will. This was an essential, this was the core of Paul's proclamation. And it must also be the very core and essential part of our witness as believers in Christ. To quote theologian and seminary professor Michael Horton, the gospel is not good instructions, not a good idea, and not good advice. The gospel is an announcement of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We, brothers and sisters, must keep the cross and resurrection of Jesus, the message of the cross, central in all that we proclaim, in all that we live out. It has to remain front and center and at the very core of who we are as our, in our identity as Christians. As the old saying goes, we need to keep the main thing, the plain thing, and the plain thing, the main thing. Pastor Kevin DeHaan, who's a pastor up in the upper Midwest, um, wrote in this regard an article called The Real Jesus Christ. And I want to read it. It's, it's a little lengthy, but I think it's very applicable to what we're talking about here and not getting sidetracked from the centrality of the gospel. He says this, the greatness of God is most clearly displayed in his son and the glory of the gospel is only made evident in his son. That's why Jesus' question to his disciples in Matthew 16 is so important. Who do you say that I am? The question is doubly crucial in our day because no one is as popular in the U.S. as Jesus. And not every Jesus is the real Jesus. 
There's the Republican Jesus, who is against tax increases and activist judges, for family values and owning firearms. There's the Democrat Jesus, who is against Wall Street and Walmart for reducing our carbon footprint and printing money. There's the therapist Jesus, who helps us cope with life's problems, heals our past, tells us how valuable we are and not to be so hard on ourselves. There's the Starbucks Jesus, who drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, drives a hybrid and goes to film festivals. There's the open-minded Jesus who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for people who are not as open-minded as you. There's the touchdown Jesus who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians and determines the outcomes of Super Bowls. There's the martyr Jesus, a good man who died a cruel death so that we can feel sorry for him. There's the gentle Jesus who was meek and mild with high cheekbones, flowing hair, and walks around barefoot wearing a sash while looking very German. (laughs) There's the hippie Jesus who teaches everyone to give peace a chance, imagines a world without religion, and helps us remember that all you need is love. There's the yuppie Jesus who encourages us to reach our full potential, reach for the stars, and to buy a boat. There's spirituality Jesus who hates religion, churches, pastors, priests, and doctrine, and will rather have people out in nature finding God within while listening to ambiguously spiritual music. There's the platitude Jesus, good for Christmas specials, greeting cards, and bad sermons, inspiring people to believe in themselves. There's the revolutionary Jesus who teaches us to rebel against the status quo, to stick it to the man, and to blame things on the system. There's the guru, Jesus, a wise, inspirational teacher who believes in you and helps you find your center. There's the boyfriend, Jesus, who wraps his arms around us as we sing about his intoxicating love in our secret place. There's the good example, Jesus, who shows you how to help people change the planet and become a better you. And then there's Jesus Christ, the son of the living God not just another prophet, not just another rabbi, not just another wonder worker. He was the one they had been waiting for, the son of David and Abraham's chosen seed, the one to deliver us from captivity, the goal of the Mosaic law, God in the flesh, the one to establish God's reign and rule, the one to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, freedom to the prisoners, and proclaim good news to the poor. The Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. This Jesus was the creator come to earth and the beginning of a new creation. He embodied the covenant, fulfilled the commandments, and reversed the curse. This Jesus is the Christ that God spoke of to the serpent. The Christ prefigured to Noah in the flood. The Christ promised to Abraham. The Christ prophesied through Balaam before the Moabites. The Christ guaranteed to Moses before he died. The Christ promised to David when he was king. The Christ revealed to Isaiah as a suffering servant. The Christ predicted through the prophets and prepared for through John the Baptist. This Christ is not a reflection of the current mood or the projection of our own desires. He is our Lord and God. He's the Father's Son, Savior of the world, and substitute for our sins. More loving, more holy, and more wonderfully terrifying than we ever thought possible. We all, the church, has a penchant 
to shift away from the central focus of the gospel, Jesus Christ crucified and risen. And whatever, whenever that happens, whatever direction it goes, and we just went through a whole long list of different directions, we see that going in our culture around us and sometimes in the church. Whenever that happens, it always reduces who Jesus is. It detracts from who Jesus is as the crucified and risen eternal son of God. And as we've seen time and time and time again through church history, it leads to heresy, to false teaching and things that are far from God. Whenever the church, whenever Christians go down this path, we always run in to big trouble. We are called to preach the truth of Christ crucified and risen. The second thing we see in verses 9 through 12 are the words to make plain. This is what the term here in verse 9 to bring to light for everyone means. Because God's heart is that this mystery be fully revealed. This mystery is fully revealed through Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is not saying that God hid the mystery of fullness of salvation in Christ. It's important to hear this. As we discussed last Sunday, this is not some abrupt change in direction of God's eternal plan. The full incorporation of the Gentiles into God's salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus was always God's plan from time and eternity past. It had always been the heart and the will of God. But it is not fully and clearly revealed until Christ comes. But God did not hide the mystery. Instead, it was hidden in God from the beginning of the ages. What are we saying there? Well, for the ages points to the reality that this was indeed revealed. It was there in the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament pointed toward this. But people missed it. And Why did people miss it? They missed out primarily because they were not fully attuned to what God was doing. Very much like this list we read about Jesus, they got caught up with temporal concerns or temporal perspectives that allowed their, those, and allowed those things to become their frame of reference. They allowed those things to skew their godly, their God-given perspective. And that should stand as a challenge to each of us. It's kind of like as one author talks about um, if you, the really nice coffee table books that we see that so often are set out in offices and some of us have them on tables in our homes with you know, really big, they weigh a ton and have lots of beautiful pictures, maybe of, um, I have one of cathedrals in York, go figure, it's me. Um, but, or of beautiful sights in nature in this country or around the world. And you can page through and see all this beauty. But, but sometimes when you flip the page, there's a fold out. And unless you open that fold, you don't see the beauty and the glory of the full picture. And as one author writes, the Christian life has unfolding moments just like that. When we discover that there is much more to God and his kingdom than we knew. And much more to his purpose for us than we imagined. Abraham experienced that at age 75. Moses at age 80. The apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. And again and again in the Bible, when God met people, he opened a glorious page for them that had previously been folded. 
God's heart is to unfold for us his will through his word. And not only does God make this mystery known to all of humanity, he is also making his plan and his unsearchable riches known to the entire created order on earth and in the heavenly realms. Look at verses 9 through 10 with me. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for God for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. There are two things we see here in these verses. First, this is about God's wisdom being made known. This great richness of God's blessing in Christ comes through God's wisdom, not the wisdom and the thinking and the ways of this world. People who attempt to grasp salvation through Christ, people who attempt to grasp God's eternal plan through, as Lynn Kohick says in her commentary, this world's calculus will always miss it. They will always miss it. Because from a merely human lens, the gospel can never be understood. The gospel will never make sense how God, the eternal son, came and died for the sins of the world and then rose. A crucified Messiah from a worldly perspective, a temporal lens, that will never make sense. But for those who see with the eyes and the wisdom that God gives, it makes perfect sense. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, remind us of this. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Second here, as I said, this mystery is not only revealed to men and women who are tuned to the heart and mind of God. It is revealed to all of the created order, including heavenly beings. That is what rulers and authorities in heavenly places here speaks of. There's several things I think we need to understand here as we read about these heavenly beings. First of all, this speaks of or refers to all heavenly beings, not just demonic or evil beings. And the mystery revealed attests to all of these beings in the heavenlies and reminds them both for good and bad in terms of their eternal destiny, that they are part of God's eternal purposes being brought about through Christ's triumph on the cross. This is because God's purposes are eternal and Christ is now and is forever victorious. Evil demonic forces are under Christ's feet and their doom, brothers and sisters, is assured. And angelic beings who minister before the throne of God are also affirmed in their ministry to God. 
And they and we are reminded and assured that with Christ's return and the establishment of the new heavens and earth, all will be brought together in Christ's ultimate reconciliation of Christ reconciling all things. All that was lost in the fall will be restored according to God's design and purpose. Second, these rulers and authorities learn these truths of God from the church. Now hear me, this is very important. This is not in the sense that the church as God's people speak these things to these heavenly beings. That's not what this is talking about here. The original language, and I did a lot of research on this this week, is in the passive voice. So it's not the church that is speaking. It is not believers here that speak the revealed mysteries of God's eternal plan to heavenly rulers and authority. Rather, it is God himself who speaks this to them by the reality of the one true church compromised of both Jews and Gentiles, which he has established according to his eternal purposes and by his grace. Now that's a mouthful. Let me back up. Basically what I'm saying, or not basically what I am saying is that through the establishment of the church comprised of Jews and Gentiles alike, through its establishment, God points and speaks to these beings saying, this is my plan. This is my revealed will. Take note of it. As F.F. Bruce says, the principalities and powers learn from the church that they do have a place in the plan of God. Why am I spending so much time on this? One, I think there's been confusion in that regard at times when people read this scripture, but also because it gives us the assurance that God is indeed at work, that he is indeed accomplishing his good plans and purposes, even when it may not feel like it around us when we look at the world. And because it reminds us and assures you and me that all of God's promises, hear that again, all of God's promises are yes and amen through Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, we need to step back. We need to ask God to help us refocus and to help us grasp the big picture of what he is doing. And that brings us to the final point in verse 13. To not be discouraged. Look at verses 11 and 13 with me. This was according to the eternal purpose that he, was, that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Wow. There's a lot there. Every single one of us has full access to God through faith in Christ. And God gives us boldness, not presumption or arrogance, but godly boldness to come into his very presence through Christ. Again, to quote Bible scholar F.F. Bruce, the two nouns, boldness and access, used together here form a single thought. Paul declares that believers may access God freely, frankly, openly, and candidly. Our boldness must be a holy boldness, a boldness that is in Christ and who he is. A holy boldness that is not only to approach God, to enter into his presence, which we will look at in detail in the next sermon from this series on prayer. 
it is also a boldness like Paul had in point number one today, to preach, to declare, to make the fullness of God's mystery in Christ known to those who so desperately need to hear the message. And like the Ephesians, God says to us to not lose heart, to not be discouraged by adversities in this life, but to be encouraged, to know that God is indeed at work. God's plans are being accomplished and his will ultimately will be done. And brothers and sisters, that should build us up and strengthen us like the Ephesians were being built up and strengthened and exhorted by St. Paul knowing that we are all recipients in Christ of God's grace. And if we haven't experienced that grace for ourselves, we are reminded that the foot is level at the cross and Christ invites us. Christ calls us. Christ compels us to come to him as savior. And we have full access to God through Christ. And we have a boldness that God gives us that encompasses coming to his presence and also making the mystery of the gospel known, known that it is available to all as Ephesians chapter six, verse 19, which we'll look at down the road a little further says, and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So be encouraged. Know that God has given us boldness to come into his presence that he's given us boldness to plainly proclaim the gospel. And he calls us to keep the core of the message, the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Those words we repeat every Sunday in the comfortable words. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. That we're to keep that message front and center as God uses us as his people for his glory. Let us pray. Father, we stand in awe of your incredible grace toward us. Your unmerited favor poured out abundantly through Christ Jesus. And Lord, that you empower us as faithful stewards of all that you've entrusted with us to, to us to be faithful heralds of the gospel, to proclaim Christ. Lord, may we keep that at the core of our message as a church. May that be the central core of our lives as you accomplish your good and gracious work in and through us. Father, protect us from side being sidetracked from tangents, from things that would take us away from the core of that message and lead us into error and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, that we may be encouraged and built up and formed into the people, Lord, that you are calling us to be. And we ask these things, trusting you through Christ our Lord. Amen.